Drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? Reggie Watts is a beatboxer, a musician. He uses loops of his voice to craft live, improvised works that sound like tracks from the best album you've never, ever heard. He's a comedian with multiple specials. He's one half of the electronica group Wahata. And, of course, he's the band leader on The Late Late Show with James Corden. He's also my guest on RN Drive. Hello, Reggie. Hi, how are you? Very, very well. I've often wanted to ask you this question. There's this kind of cliched uh, sort of view of the tortured artist or even the comedian. But every time I see you perform, you seem like you're having the best time of your life. How can that be real? How, how do you find joy in your work every time you work? Ah, uh, gosh. Um, I love the element of surprise because I'm improvising. Uh, improvisation gives me this bandwidth to kind of play with whatever's happening in the moment. So for me, doing a show is kind of akin to being at a show or going to the show. So I, I'm kind of watching the show along with the audience. So, you know, in a way, it's like it's kind of an interesting inverted situation. But I, I, I love it that way. And that way it keeps me on my toes. I'm surprised. And I'm having a good time and hopefully the audience is as well. A lot of people might think improvisation has this kind of mystical, cosmic kind of feel to it. So so how do you turn it on every night at the right time? How do you prepare for that? You know, I, I don't really prepare that much. I, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I really don't, re I don't prepare. I, I, I mainly just, you know, try to have a, a good day, try to learn as much as I as I can, if I'm touring and I'm in another city, I try to, uh, you know, absorb the surroundings around me, you know, take a walk, go to a coffee shop, um, or if I'm getting a ride, you know, from somebody, then I'm asking them questions about, you know, what it's like and what it's going on. I just try to collect as much data as possible. And then, but not in like a, not in like a super active way uh more more just kind of casually just interested like i would normally be even if i didn't have a a show and then when the show arrives and that time comes for me to get on stage then um you know then i just kind of let all of that go and and then i see what surfaces during the show so how is that different then when you're creating something more permanent like a, a special or the wahata album i mean is there still space for improvisation and absorbing the energy of the day as you head into the studio yeah i mean i i don't know i guess i guess for those things like even wahada um or let's say it's well with wahada for instance if we're making music if we're creating tracks uh you know it's it's still a very momentous or in the moment situation i show up i you know hang out with john a little bit then we we start working on a track and he maybe maybe he has a skeleton maybe we decide to build something from scratch but we do it very very quickly and then we pull out the microphone um and then i just improvise a bunch of stuff on top of the track and um yeah maybe i'll reinforce an idea really quickly if i like a certain hook or something like that and then that's kind of it and then i maybe maybe add a synth thing on top of it or not and maybe we do a couple of those and then i walk away and then the next day he has a rough mix of the track and then when it comes to something like a special all i know is that i have a concept for how i'd like the special to look uh and and maybe some 
cues for things to happen. But other than that, everything is still fully improvised. So I don't really prepare for it. I, I try to never prepare for anything that I do. <laughs> sounds like a perfect way to live your life, uh, never stressing as well, <laughs> and uh, being surprised at what comes out of even your own, uh, you know, mind and and, and yeah. music. There is a strong element of absurdism running through your comedy. It'd be fair to say. Who were your inspirations? What drew you to that sort of comedy in the first place? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I was a huge fan of Monty Python, of course, um, and they really had a huge effect on me because it was it was just so silly everything was just about extreme silliness but it was so intellectual at the same time so it was really stimulating to see that as a, as a child and then of course just you know uh Abbott and Costello or uh you know um or the Carol Burnett show you know, or the comedy of Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy, you know, when I was a kid, those those types of things, just anything like slapstick, absurd, ridiculous, I just gravitated towards that. I just thought it was, I, I, I just thought it was so important to view life as a very silly thing um, and to kind of reflect that. Yeah, I remember watching Monty Python as a child and there was that feeling that you were getting jokes that even adults aren't getting. It, it felt like this kind of club. Do you think that you're drawn to absurdism yeah. because it, it sort of allows you to make different, I don't know, points or, or lean on different ideas that you don't often get to make in other kinds of comedy? Or Yeah, I mean, I think absurdism is great because it's uh, it's kind of the greatest common denominator um, in that it, it, it really is about kind of deconstructing and decontextualizing and recontextualizing things so that they're no longer recognizable in a traditional sense. And that's very liberating for me because, you know, I, I just kind of see the world in that way. Anything that's serious can be taken down a peg. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I, I care about things. So my absurdity definitely has an element of hopefully a detectable form of compassion um, and and love to it. Uh, and, you know, I, I just like to, I like to deconstruct things so that things aren't as dire and as serious, uh, you know, as they can be taken in life. So speaking about compassion and love in your comedy, you kind of move between different accents and styles of speech in your sketches. It feels like one instantly brings a particular sort of person to mind. Accents in comedy have changed dramatically over the decades, but they are so, still so powerful to signify a, a character. How do you think about how you use accents now? And, and do you think twice about how, how you use them? Mm. That's a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a, there's always a little bit of uh, analysis about what's going on in in the zeitgeist currently. I I tend to because I'm because I'm constantly researching what's going on now, and I'm pretty active. I go out a lot. I see a lot of shows. I have uh, friends from different generations. Um, so I'm always circulating between enough people to kind of get a read on what's going on, uh, in general, cultural, culturally. And so I think that I don't really have to think, oh, I just, I just don't think I have to think about it too much because it seems to be in the correct balance. And when I'm live, I can also get a temperature feel from the audience, uh, as well. 
So, I mean, yeah, it's something I've definitely thought about, um, not on stage uh, for 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 moments, uh, but it's usually pretty self-regulating. It just seemed like accents for a long time were the sort of first stop for comedy, and these days it comes loaded with so much other context. It's it's fascinating to see how it's changing. On ABCRN, I'm Andy Park. Reggie Watts is my guest this afternoon. And Reggie, you've been working on a, a memoir lately about your relationship with your hometown of Great Falls, Montana. It's coming out later this year. I, I was just hoping you could talk to me about what led you home again. Was it the pandemic or something else? I've always had a, an affinity for my hometown. Uh, I, I uh, you know, since leaving when I was 18 to Seattle, um, I definitely was glad that I wasn't living there anymore for quite some time but then you know uh as years went by i i recognized that i was that montana had a huge effect on me and was responsible for the some of the most important aspects of my personality and development and yeah i've always felt a kinship to montana and always wanted to give back in some way, whether referencing it in a positive way or just going back and visiting my friends or bringing friends to visit Montana. Um, it just kind of increased over time. And then of course, as my parents started getting older, I started coming back more frequently for them. Um, and, and because I like being home, but you know, I'd come home to my mom after my dad passed away. It was, yeah, it was, it was just kind of this tradition that I look forward to every year and you know in the in the early years I would only go maybe once or twice a year back home and then towards the last seven years or so I was going back almost every month um because my mother was getting more ill so I wanted to spend as much time as possible and not have that regret of not having to at least made an effort and when you did come to put together the band for The Late Late Show, it sort of feels like you were all acclaimed performers on your own right. So how did you sort of start to put that jigsaw together and go, well, this works here, this works well there, that person works well here? It's an interesting kind of way to approach. It started with, you know, the meeting when I met with James Corden when he was pitching me the idea to be the band leader for The Late Late Show. You know, I just told him, I said, hey, you know, I, I I, really want to be able to do this band the way that I want to. And he was like, sure, no problem. They gave me free reign to pick whoever I wanted to pick, you know, within reason. Like I couldn't pick like a 17 person band or something like that. But I was excited because this was a chance for me to put together a team. And um, yeah, and the first two people I, I picked were people that I went to school with. I went, I went to school with. Um, Tim Young, the guitar player, went, went to Cornish College of the Arts in Seattle in the 90s and knew him from then and some other projects. And he's one of the most incredible musicians in the world. And so um, I knew for sure I'd ask him. He also had a family, a new family, and he lived in L.A. So I, I figured those are all the right <laughs> ingredients. And then St Steve Scalfati I knew from Seattle as well. We worked a lot and done some production stuff. And he was a musician that played in the jam scene and he's an incredible producer. So I knew that he would be a good addition because he understands my aesthetics when it comes to synthesizers and, and he's a great piano player. He also plays saxophone, but he also uh, produces 
commercially. So he knows how to produce jingles and audio logos and sound alikes and things like that. So I thought he'd be a good asset. And then uh, the drummer, we just had auditions, but heard about Guillermo from, you know, people around the LA scene. And he tried out and he was great. And I wanted a, a band that was also diverse. And it was great that uh, Guillermo came along, perfect dude, really dug his vibe. And uh, and then the last person I got was the bass player. It was really hard because I wanted at least one to two women in the band. And um, and I looked specifically for uh, uh, a bass player woman. And luckily, we got referred to by Jack White's bass player, uh, Catherine Popper. She told me about Hagar Benari. And I went to New York and auditioned her there and she was exactly what we were looking for plus she's incredibly telegenic so yeah so the whole package worked together i i kind of visualized how it would work together and um you know we'd be improvising everything and not really rehearsing and it all worked out perfectly I do want to ask you about your relationship with technology. A few years ago, you had your own app created in part to step aside from the problems of privacy and tracking for users in social media. You recently stepped in for the AI expert, Alan D. Thompson, to talk to a GPT-3-powered avatar. It seems like there's no limit really to the exponential growth or application of artificial intelligence these days, I think. Uh, GPT is the fastest growing consumer application ever. Does it terrify you as well as yeah. thrill you? It hasn't really terrified me yet. Uh, but I I view, I'm excited about artificial intelligence because to me, it, it represents an opportunity to finally get some assistance uh, that might offload some of, uh, you know, I guess... I guess how I look at it is I look at AI as a tool, so I, I don't see it any differently than buying, going to a music store and buying a delay pedal and a distortion pedal, and you know you plug those in after your instrument, and then you know through an amp, it's like the delay pedal or the distortion pedal gives you a texture, um, gives you new possibilities uh, that you didn't have before if you were just playing your instrument without them. And so for me, AI is that. It's just an augmented, it's an augmentation tool. tool. It's a tool to um, exercise uh, different possibilities uh, using another aspect of, I guess, the human self and eventually, hopefully, when we when we're able to have trained AIs ourselves, personal AI, um, it's just an extension of ourselves and it alleviates a lot of menial tasks. Um, and in art, it can create some crazy randomized results that might inspire an artist to do something different or go in a different direction. So for me, I see it as a tool. And also I see it even going so far as to helping with legislation to be more equitable for human existence and possibly maybe uh, regulating uh, capitalism in a way that might be more beneficial for more people instead of relying on the emotional greed aspects of humanity. So I see it in a positive way. Of course, it can be used in a negative way. It can be used for nefarious uh, purposes. But I, I think it's important for artists or people like myself and other technologists and anybody who's interested to come to the table now to help guide uh, where AI can go. Yeah, how fascinating that that's your view as someone who specializes in improvisation to appreciate the prediction of artificial intelligence. Reggie, it's been such a great <laughs> opportunity to pick your brain and thank you so much for joining me this afternoon.
Yeah, it's my total pleasure. Thank you. Reggie Watts is appearing at the Humankind Festival in Sydney on the 18th of March. For more details, you can go to humankind.sydney. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.